Welcome friends, guests, and visitors. It's a joy to be together this evening worshiping the Lord. And our call to worship this evening comes from Psalm 145. I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Our scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 11, and we'll be reading until chapter 9, verse 7. Isaiah 8, verse 11, through 9, verse 7. Hear the word of our Lord. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God? For the living to the dead, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And they shall pass through it, hardly uh, be stead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish. And they shall be driven to darkness. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Our text this evening brings us back to around the year 725 B.C. That's 725 years before Christ was born. At this time, the kingdom of Assyria 
is growing more and more powerful. So smaller kingdoms are starting to, to get together. They're starting to make alliances against Assyria. Or if they think this doesn't work, they're paying tribute to Assyria to prevent this kingdom of Assyria from taking over them. And this, this, this threat, this threat of invasion and, and destruction, this, this threat of oppression, it's, it's looming over the nations of Israel and the nations of Judah. And uh, the nation of Syria and the nation of Israel, they decided to get together and they made one of these alliances against Assyria. The result is this alliance failed. They, in fact, even attacked Judah trying to get them to join their alliance, but Judah re- refused. And what happened is that Assyria took over all of Syria and they took over most of the nation of Israel. Only Samaria, the capital city, remained. But the prophets, they proclaimed that it too would fall to the kingdom of Assyria. And during this, the people of Judah are living in what the scripture says is a time of gloom. Their kingdom has been reduced to a vassal state. What this means is that they're paying large amounts of tribute to the emperor by the name of Sargon at that point to keep Assyria from attacking them. The nation of Judah and they have little power, and the nation of Israel at this point have little power. They have little hope for the future. A mighty, a, a wealthy, a, a wicked kingdom threatens their existence, threatening to obliterate them like they have done to so many other nations. They can't compete against Assyria. They can't form an alliance that is strong enough. There's no point in rebelling Freedom and justice are impossible expectations for them to have. The yoke of Assyrian servitude, the yoke of Assyrian oppression has been placed upon them. Israel will attempt to rebel, but they will be conquered. Their people dispersed. Judah will be ravaged and most of the nation of Judah will be captured and destroyed by Assyria. There will be a little bit of respite for them, but as we know, they will be conquered and brought into exile 135 years later by Babylon. And as we were one of these people at this time, if we sat and reflected upon our kings, upon our nations, if we look back, we'd see that most of our kings have been wicked, they've been weak. They've been vassals to different nations, servitude, in servitude to Egypt or Assyria or another nation. There's none that have risen to be like David or Solomon. None who ruled over prosperous kingdoms, respected and honored by other nations. And even David and Solomon were disappointed, disappointing as well. David's sin was a was a blight on the nation. Solomon's sin and subjugation of the people led to the dividing of Israel into two separate kingdoms. None of these kings exemplified. None of these kings filled the slot or checked all the boxes of this Messiah that the people were looking for. They all were a disappointment. And now at this time, the kings, the king in Israel is Hoshea, a wicked, wicked king. The king in Judah is Ahaz, himself a very wicked and exceedingly ungodly king. They're in darkness. Yet, here the Lord comes. He comes in the midst of this gloom and this darkness. And he promises light. He promises the coming of the perfect king. Into this climate of despair, God sends his word through his servant Isaiah. 
And he tells them that this gloom, this dimness that they now experience, it will disappear. If we look at the beginning of chapter 9, we see Isaiah speaking about Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan and of Galilee. This is an area of land that has already been conquered and heavily oppressed by the Assyrians. These areas mostly made up of what is known as Galilee. Isaiah speaks about them here. Going through oppression in, in, in darkness. And he says about the people in this land. He says, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Upon them hath the light shined. He states this in the past tense. But it is a prophecy of what will happen in the future. He states it in the past tense because it's, he's recounting a vision he's had. And it's so sure to happen. It's as if it has already occurred. The people will see a great light. For it's in this region, it's in this region of Galilee where Jesus will live. Where Jesus will undertake much of his ministry. Now the people of Israel, they walked in darkness, not only because they were oppressed by the Assyrians, but also because they sought rescue from other sources than the Lord. And they did not look. They did not wait upon the Lord or look to Him for help, but they looked to other nations. They looked to other gods, to mediums, to witches for aid. Yet in spite of their unfaithfulness, in spite of their idolatrous ways, the Lord promises here that he will shine his gospel light of hope upon them. For Christ will come to them. He will come to dwell among them to speak words of life to them and to live with them. And then Isaiah gets to this precious, precious prophecy. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And this is particularly what I'd like to look at tonight. And our sermon this evening is titled, The Coming King. First, a child and son. Secondly, a wonderful counselor. Third, a mighty God. Fourth, an everlasting father. And fifth, the prince of peace. Isaiah prophesies that a child will come and a son will be given. Anyone reading or, or hearing this prophecy immediately is going to think back two chapters. They're immediately going to draw a connection here. Or we should draw a connection to Isaiah 7 verse 14 where Isaiah prophesied, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A child will come. And a son will be given, a child and a son called Emmanuel, a child and son who is God with us. The whole idea here of revealing that the coming one will be a child of, of course tells us that this is, this is much more than an earthly king that's being promised. It's much more than an earthly king being promised that will, that will provide some temporary relief from enemies or give a period of prosperity to the nation. No, this prophecy of a child immediately reveals the connection here, reveals the connection all the way back to the messianic promises that we first get in Genesis 3.15. And the promises given to the patriarch. That the seed of the woman will come, a human being, a seed, a child will come who will crush the head of Satan. 
draws a connection to the descendant that's promised to Abraham who will come and who will bless the nations. This is no ordinary child promised. But this is the blessed the blessed one. The one coming to reverse the curse of sin that we brought upon ourselves. And Isaiah tells us also here that this child also is a son. Why do you think he reveals that he is a son? Well, he wants to give some even further weight to this prophecy. By saying he is a son, he is, of course, revealing that he will be the son of David. He will be heir to the throne. He will be a king. A king that will have the government upon his shoulder. He will carry the might and authority of government and he will righteously rule forever. Isaiah later prophesies in chapter 22, verse 22. He says, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut and none shall open. As the messianic son of David... This child, of course, is also the son of God. We see David giving us evidence of this from Psalm 2, verse 7, where God says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as the son of David, as the son of God, this Messiah doesn't just rule a nation, but he rules all the nations. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He rules over everything. And he's also the ruler of a kingdom that is not of this world. He's the ruler over a spiritual kingdom. He rules over the kingdom of God. And it is also this government, it is also this authority that rests upon his shoulders. The Holy Spirit uses two ordinary, two simple terms here to describe our Lord Jesus Christ. And he does this specifically. He does this specifically to use these two ordinary terms to describe the King of Kings. Here is Almighty God. Yet he lowers himself to our level. Yahweh becomes a child. Yahweh becomes a human son. He becomes us so that he can do what we cannot do. He comes into this world to banish that darkness, to banish that gloom. That was oppressing his people. He comes into our darkness and he shines his light upon us. We who dwell in the shadow of death, we who dwell in, in deep darkness, the light of Christ and his gospel has, has shone, up, shone upon us. It has been brought to us by a child and by a son. And the Holy Spirit does this. He, he does this too in, in this passage, not to show the commonness of this king, not to dismiss him as unimportant, but he does this to highlight for us Christ's accessibility. The Lord comes as a child, a son to show us that we can approach him. Though he be king of the universe and a consuming fire, yet we can come close to him. We can be in a relationship with him. And this is, in fact, his desire for us. And so for those of you here who are not believers, to you who are, are not dealing with a God, and you are not dealing here with a God and Savior who is avoiding you or is hiding himself from you. 
Our God is, is not fickle. He, he does not say one thing and mean another, mean another. He's calling you. He's commanding you to turn from this darkness, from the darkness of unbelief that you dwell in and to turn to the light of Christ. He's calling you to flee from your life of sin and gloom, to leave the land of deep darkness and, and to come to Him. To come to Him who is light. He's telling you here that He is approachable. That He became a child. That He became a human son so that He could suffer and die for sinners. For sinners just like you. Sinners who are in darkness. Sinners who are in darkness and they don't even recognize they're in darkness. Do you recognize that you're living in darkness? That right now you stand condemned before God? Do you recognize the peril that you are in if you're not a child of God? Do you lament the fact that this morning you did not have the right to attend the Lord's Supper? Do you lament the fact that your heart is cold to the gospel? Well, Christ came. He stooped to our level. He became exactly like us, yet without sin. He came for sinners whose hearts are dead, just like your heart is dead, to this message right now. He came to give dead sinners life. He came to shine light into dark hearts. He promises that if you turn to Him in your darkness... You turn to him with your dark hearts. If you repent and believe the gospel, he will not turn you away. He will not banish you from his sight. But he promises to work. He is the only one who can break through the darkness. He's the only one who can save you. You cannot save yourself. So today, do not rest. Do not let this gospel call go to waste, but flee to him. Isaiah tells us that this coming Messiah will be a child. A child that is born, a child that is a son. A child that is approachable and like us. But now Isaiah goes on here. He goes on and the similarity here between us and this coming Messiah, it begins to fade. It starts to fade for this child will be a king. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now we use the word wonderful. We say things like, that was a wonderful meal. We had the most wonderful time at your home this evening. But how the word wonderful is used in the Old Testament is, is, is different than this. They use this particular word to describe the miracles which God did in delivering Israel from Egypt. They use this word to describe the miracles he, he did in the desert. This word refers to the great works that God has done. Works that really feel, fill us with wonder. The Lord also uses this for his name. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah and his wife. Manoah is the father of Samson. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah and his wife. They asked this angel what his name was, and he replied, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? 
Now this word secret actually is the same word here used for wonderful. And we know that whenever an angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, it's often thought that it's a, it's often thought that it's a Christophany, that it's actually the appearance of Jesus in a pre-incarnate body. So if we put all of these things together, we realize we realize that what Isaiah is doing here is he's drawing a connection. He's drawing a connection between the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, who's called Wonderful, and the Messiah described here in Isaiah 9. He's not just saying here that Jesus would be a great king, that he would be a wonder, performing minor wonders, but that he was the wonder-performing almighty God whose name is Wonderful. He is the wonder whose very being is too wonderful for us to fully comprehend. He is the child, the son, who is almighty God. He is wonderful. But these words are connected. He is also the wonderful counselor. He is wisdom, the wise king, the one who is greater than Solomon. There were very wise people during Bible times, today as well. But a couple that come to mind are Ahithophel. He was a wise counselor. He was a a counselor to David. His wisdom was said to be like the wisdom of God. And then, of course, there was Solomon. Solomon requested that the Lord would give him wisdom. And it was said of him that they that, they that saw, that is Solomon, they saw that the wisdom of God was with him. But both of these men, though they were very wise, their wisdom either failed them or, or they fell away. Ahithophel allied himself, not with David, but with wicked Absalom. And when his wisdom wasn't followed, he committed suicide. Solomon, we know, did not choose wisely, but he neglected the faith and and lived for the world. But this king, this Messiah, his wisdom will not fail him. His wisdom is a wonder. His rule and counsel are are wonderful. He says of himself in Proverbs 8 that he is wisdom. And Paul says of him in Colossians 2, in whom, in him, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is wisdom. And his counsel to us is that we incline our ears to him, that we learn of him. That we hearken to him. And then we will dwell in safety, as Isaiah says, without fear of disaster. His wisdom, Christ's wisdom, not our wisdom, will not fail us. What a comfort to the people here in Isaiah's day. Everything seems so bleak. Everything seems so dark. Kings that fail them. Kings that are foolish. But to know, to know that this coming Messiah would be the wonderful counselor. And as they face the inadequacy of their own kings, they looked at their own propensity their own they're often abandoning the lord and acting foolishly what a comfort as they face the onslaught of these wicked nations to know that the lord is sending this infinitely wonderful and wise messiah to deliver them that he was sending his son as a child and that this wonderful counselor would at last inaugurate his everlasting kingdom He would inaugurate this kingdom by coming into the world through the wonderful miracle 
of the incarnation. He would come as a child. A child who is also almighty God. And as we go through this life, dear Christian, as sin and the world challenge us, as we realize our foolishness and see our inadequacy, the ease with which we stray from the path of godliness, as we worry that we will not persevere, that we will abandon the gospel for the world. Because of God's word, because of what he says about himself, because of his precious promises to us, I can tell you, dear Christian, to fear not. Because we have a wonderful counselor, the wisest miracle-performing God who is our guide through this life. We have nothing in ourselves, but we have everything in our wonderful counselor. So let us look to him. Let us depend on him this week and confess by faith as Asaph did in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isaiah continues to show us with these next words, this next name, that the coming Messiah is Almighty God because he plainly says here, he plainly proceeds by naming him as Mighty God. He calls him Mighty God, the same title given to God elsewhere in Isaiah. This name is straightforward. The Messiah, the coming Messiah, is Almighty God. And this name is particularly used in the Hebrew to distinguish the Messiah as being mighty in battle. He is the Messiah that will fight for his people. He is the Messiah that will vanquish all their enemies. The child is not only wonderfully and infinitely wise, but he is mighty. He is sovereign and his will will be accomplished. As we look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, one of the mistakes that we can make when we think about Jesus is we think about him as a baby in a manger, but we forget to think about him as being Almighty God. And as we as Christians face challenges, as Satan, sin, and society try to get us to fall, as they attempt to get us to prompt, compromise the gospel, as they strive to turn us away from the, the truth of Scripture, we cannot forget that our Messiah, the mighty God, the almighty God, is in control and rules over everything. And it may be in particular, in particular this week, as we've celebrated the Lord's Supper, that the onslaught of the enemy against you will be particularly vicious. Today, you, in this church, publicly professed the name of Christ. You were nourished with his spiritual body and blood. But remember that as you go out this week as his witness, that he does not leave you alone. But he sends you with his Holy Spirit. The mighty God sends you. And he gives you assurance here in this name that he is almighty and mighty. You may be called to fight. You may be called to witness in awkward circumstances. It may cost you to profess the name of Christ, to proclaim the truth of Scripture. But you are in the hands of your almighty God and he will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Now, in these next two names, Isaiah shifts his focus a little bit. The names of Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God emphasize the coming Messiah's divinity. And these next two names do so as well, but they they do so, they emphasize more the effects of Christ's rule as king. Isaiah now calls the Messiah everlasting father, eternal father or father of eternity. He's saying the Messiah is one who inhabits eternity. This Messiah has always existed. He will always exist and he exists outside of time. I can't understand that and I don't think you can as well. But he's also the king that has always ruled. He rules in time. He rules outside of time. And he will rule forever. And he is eternally a father. The sovereign of all things. He calls himself a father here. Well, you may ask, how can Jesus, how can the Messiah be father if he is the only begotten son of the father? Well, there's a couple reasons for this. Yes, Jesus is not God the Father, but the Spirit may have given them this title here to show the unity between Christ and Father, that they are one God. And also the names given here for the Messiah, they serve as descriptive names. Jesus is called Father here because he acts like a father. He He, the eternal God, again, is is not aloof, but he enters into time to be a father to his children. The psalmist says it like this, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. This is how Jesus acts. Jesus is acting like a father. He sympathizes with his people. He pities his people. He shows compassion to them. The Messiah watches over his people. This isn't a temporary thing. This, is, this isn't only something he does once. It's something he has done forever. And it's something he will do forever. He guards and protects you, dear Christian. He watches over you. He is right now praying for you. You are in his hands. He has come into time to specifically care for you and to bring you to be with him. He has come to bring his people into light. He has come to build up his kingdom. To cause his saints to be, to focus on him. So that as Isaiah says in verse 3, their joy would increase So that they would rejoice because of the great salvation that he has accomplished. He comes to have compassion and care for his people. But he also rules, as we will see, as the Prince of Peace. Jesus also, the Messiah also comes as the Prince of Peace. His kingdom will increase. And his kingdom is is come to bring peace. Now, I don't know about your experience, and it hasn't happened to me. I haven't heard it as much lately. But especially when I was younger and people asked, what do you want for Christmas? A lot of people would respond, well, we we want world peace, or I want world peace. Well, this is what Christ... And the gospel brings. Yes, Jesus does say in Matthew 10, 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but the sword. And yes, this is often the immediate effect of the gospel. The gospel is often met with hostility. Hostility that leads to conflict and and even to war. But when I say here that Christ is bringing world peace, this is the final result. 
This is the final result of Christ and the gospel. Christ and the gospel will bring peace. This is the final work that will be accomplished and that is at the heart of the gospel. We see this in the angel's proclamation. Glory to God in the highest and on earth goodwill. On earth peace, goodwill toward men. Christ Jesus came to bring peace between God and men. He came to put to an end the rebellion of sinful humanity against a holy, righteous, and good God. And we've seen this physically displayed for us in the Lord's Supper today. Christ visibly displays for us his intentions of peace. He visibly shows us how he accomplished peace between God and his people. He is now applying it, dear believer, to your heart, working his peace in you. If you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, he has shown you today that there is peace between you and God. And as you go out this week and you fight the fight, as you run the race, you can be confident in Christ. You can be confident that he has, he has shown you this day, what he has shown you this day, that there is peace between you and the triune God. There is peace because he has made peace with you. And you will be tempted to look at yourself. You will see the remaining sin that is in yourself. You will see the remaining unbelief and rebellion in your heart and possibly conclude that there is no peace. But if Christ is yours, if he is your only hope, if you're looking to him, there is peace. Not because you've made it, not because you've contributed to it in any way, but because he has made peace. He has accomplished it, and he has proclaimed that there is peace between you and him. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. His goal is to bring peace to everything, to restore the peace that existed before the entrance of sin into the world. And as a conquering king, as a king of everything, he calls sinners to surrender to him, to bow before him in repentance. He's building his kingdom. Of the increase of his kingdom and government and peace, there shall be no end, Isaiah says. And in building his kingdom and establishing his kingdom of, pre of peace, the prince of peace goes to war. He goes to war with sin and evil. We see this hinted at in verse 4. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. As the Lord defeated the Midianites in the day of Gideon, as he relieved the Israelites of the great burden of Midianite oppression, so he has and will break the yoke of sin that lays upon us. The day is coming when there will be no sin. It will be vanquished. It will be defeated. For Christ, the Prince of Peace, has established His kingdom with judgment and with justice from now and unto forever. And dear believer, we await this. You await this with eager expectation. Looking forward to that day when you will finally be free from sin. When you will finally be free from the effects of sin. We look eagerly forward to basking in the glory of our Savior, of gratefully bowing in worship before Him. And Christ, He will bring His peace. And there's nothing that will stand in His way of obtaining this peace. If we do not bow to Him, 
if we do not receive this peace by faith, if you continue to rebel in unbelief, he will even have peace and justice through your judgment and eternal punishment. He is the Prince of Peace. He is a king who goes to war against sin. He will have his peace. A kingdom of peace, it demands justice. For there would be no peace in Christ's kingdom if sin were not dealt with. Our sin will be dealt with in order to bring peace. It will either be dealt with through the sacrifice and death of Jesus Christ... Or you will bear the wrath of God for your sin for all eternity. Christ will have his kingdom. And his kingdom will be a kingdom of peace. During the Advent season, we celebrate that Jesus was born as a child in a manger. The Old Testament saints... Look forward to this. We get to look back and see this. To experience the effects of Christ's wonderful birth. But like them, we are too looking forward. Looking forward to when this Christ will come again. When his kingdom of peace will be established. And Christ is coming again, not as a child in a manger. But he's coming As a king and a judge of all creation. And I think some of us, we like to, during this Advent season, think how we would react if we would have been at Jesus' birth. What we would have done. How we would have, have greeted Jesus. But all of us will be present at his triumphal return. How will we greet him when he returns? Will we fall on our knees in adoration and praise or will we fall before him in dread? He told all of us today who he is. And this revelation commands a response from us. Commands that we by true faith align ourselves with this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this eternal father and, and this prince of peace. Christ, the Messiah, became a child in order to make salvation possible. This almighty God, this sovereign king, became like us. He's invited us today to to come and, and eat with him. And he invites sinners to, to come eat with him in the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I plead with you again, do not turn away this invitation. Do not spurn the invitation of this king. He has done everything. He has prepared the table of salvation. He has made everything ready and he calls saying, everyone, ho, everyone that thirsteth, come, buy and eat without money and without price. This is an invitation that you must not turn down. For if you do, it will lead to your eternal destruction. There's one other, just one other thing before we end that I want to say to all Christians here, all believers. I fear that many of us forget to rejoice about these things that we've just heard. About this amazing Savior, this amazing Messiah that we have. We live in a busy world. We get so caught up in ourselves. Or we get distracted. We rightfully mourn our sin. 
We have doubts and fears. The busyness of life takes over us during this Advent season. But we have every reason to rejoice. We have every reason to rejoice in what the Lord has done here. In the incarnation, in Christ becoming man, there's no greater news in the world. We'll never find reason to rejoice in ourselves. You'll never have that Christmas where you look at yourself and you're happy with what you see. But we can look to Christ. And there's infinite reason for us to rejoice in Him this Advent season. So let us keep our eyes of faith fixed upon Him. Meditating on who He is. Meditating on what our great Savior has done. For He became a child. And a son. For your sake, dear believer. He who is your sovereign Lord. He who is our wonderful counselor. Our mighty God. Our everlasting Father. And our Prince of Peace. Amen. Our faithful and wonderful Lord in heaven. We thank thee, dear Lord, for thy wonderful word, which conveys to us so much of who thou art. We thank thee, O Lord, that for the preciousness of thy word, for thou dost continue to speak to us each and every day, telling us more about who thou art and what thou hast done. And so we pray, O Lord, that thou would be with each of us this Advent season. Bless the sermons that we will hear, the devotions that each of us do, the Bible reading and study that we do. That our eyes would be fixed upon thee. That our hearts would be looking to thee. Finding our hope, finding our joy in thee, our great Savior. And so, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.